Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I am so glad to introduce a good friend and colleague of mine for this podcast, Relationship Truth Unfiltered, and this is Joy Forrest. She is the founder and executive director of Call to Peace Ministries. She's also the author of a great book called Call to Peace, A Survivor's Guide to Finding Peace and Healing After Abuse. And so, Joy, you started an entire ministry that's just growing like gangbusters and advocacy and support for women in domestic violence situations, but it started with a story. It started with your own story of being a victim. Would you share with our listeners a little bit about your story and what what happened and what led you out of that situation? Sure. Thank you um, for having me, Leslie. Well, um, I did not grow up with abuse, but when I was about 14, I met a young man who was about three years older than me. Um, And we ended up dating throughout my high school time and through college. And then we got married shortly after he finished college. He started before me and finished after me. Anyway, as I was in this relationship, I had been one of four children and I was, I felt like maybe I hadn't had the kind of attention that he started showing me, even when I was just 14 or 15 years old. He would be so interested in everything that I did. He would call me multiple times a day to see what I was doing. He was interested in how I dressed and he had suggestions and he would help buy me clothes. And so I was just not used to that kind of attention. One day when we were driving in the car, he started asking me about former boyfriends. And so I just told him the truth. I felt like I had nothing to hide. And all of a sudden he slammed on brakes and started calling me names and told me to get out and left me just walking. I was about five miles from home. Well, about 10 minutes later, because I'm just walking baffled and not understanding why he's so upset. He comes and screeches the brakes and uh, opens the door and says, get in. And then he drives me home and deposits me. And then I don't hear from him for several days. When I did hear from him, And my thought was, well, I guess that's the end of that, which, you know, we hadn't really invested much time in each other. So I thought it was strange. And that was the end of it. But about three days later, he calls me and he apologizes. He says, I'm sorry. It's just that I care so much for you. And it just hurt me when I found out that you had other people besides me in your life. And, And so it made me feel guilty. It made me feel like, Oh my goodness, what in the world? Like why he cares so much for me. Of course, I'm, I've got the, re- the reasoning of a 14-year-old, I suppose. So I had never had anybody show me that kind of attention. And so he would do things like that from time to time. And I told people that that was the first lesson in a thousand, I won't ever do that again, because I thought, well, I will just never talk about this again. I'll never do that again. So every time there was a little blow up and they were not every day. So it would be weeks or even months between the blowups, it didn't seem that bad. Um, My dad seemed to recognize it and he tried to warn me, but I really didn't (laughs) respect what my dad had to say. Uh, My parents were going through a separation. So I thought that he just doesn't know what he's talking about. And most 14 year olds don't think their parents know what they're talking about. Yes. So anyway, long story short, we ended up getting married. I did see some red flags. I had had a period of pretty much walking, uh, walking away from the Lord for a little while and just kind of backsliding in college. And I had no peace 
but I, I was doing what everybody said we need to do. We, you know, we go to college, we get married and then we start a family. Right. So I, um, got out and there had never been any kind of indication that there would be physical abuse and there had not, there had never had been any physical abuse. Um, and then we got married and it was in a time where the economy was really bad. And so he began to get angrier and angrier. He actually read a book that was about, um, name it and claim it, basically the, the name it and claim it theology. So he could just claim the job that he wanted. And when things didn't work out the way he was naming and claiming, then he got angrier at God. And to, to the point that one night he got really so angry at me, he said, you can deny God or you can go and meet him. And he had a little knife at my neck. So the, the physical violence was 11 years into our relationship. It didn't happen right away. Wow. And so, um, we ended up separating and um, this happened on and off throughout the early years of our marriage until finally somebody gave me James Dobson's book, Love Must Be Tough. And so I started calling the police anytime that he looked at me wrong. And so uh, that sort of stopped the physical episodes of violence. Um, I put him through medical school and that really stopped it because I was supporting him. But then after he got out of medical school and um, internship residency, um, then we um, started seeing violence creep back into the marriage. So physical violence, but all along there was this control. I really didn't, wasn't allowed to have my own opinions. Um, anytime I disagreed with him on something, he would get angry. So again, I thought that submission meant that I just blindly follow whatever he tells me. And so I basically conformed even my opinions to his. So I lost myself over those years. I think it says in one of your books, it talks about systematically erasing their personhood or something mm -hmm. like that. I love that quote because that's exactly what happened. I just became a shell of the person I had, be had been at one point. And we sort of think, you know, if that happens, that's actually a noble thing. Like we're being a good wife, we're dying to ourselves, we're not being selfish. And we don't realize that that's exactly opposite to what God means when he talks about dying to self. He's not saying become a nothing. Um, but the, the sort of, you know, we sort of spiritualize this abusive pattern where we're being suffocated slowly to death. And we're just now a role, as long as I make him happy, as long as I do what he wants, as long as I keep his life going, we're good. And that's called a good marriage. And it's not, but we're kind of lulled into that thought as Christians and sometimes even taught that that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. So I basically had made my marriage an idol. I had made him an idol because he was and when I say this, people get offended. Well, he, he wasn't an idol. You weren't worshiping him, but he was an idol in that he had complete control of my life. He, all my thoughts were filtered through how is he going to respond to that? That's how bad it had gotten by the end. And so, so what you mean by that is he became your God. He became your yeah, defining authority. My, Instead of God being your defining authority, he became your defining authority. He became what you oriented yourself around. And I think that's what we mean when we talk about idolatry. We don't mean that you purposely did it. You you know, did it because if you didn't, you were going to get punished by this God, but yeah. he did become the person that defined you the most versus your heavenly father. Yeah. He, he became my functional God. And so finally towards the end, it, there was a, a lot of deception going on in the marriage. And I finally started confronting him on that. And it led to an incident where he 
became physically violent again because he had we had gone maybe five or six years with none when he was in school and everything and so uh, when I defy when I basically called him out on some of the things that he had done some of the deception um, it became physically violent again and I ended up leaving but this time he just went berserk and started um, chopping up and burning antique furniture that I had bought. I had brought into the marriage from my grandmother. He took all of my personal items, everything that I owned, and he threw it in the town dumpster. The only reason I knew is because he called my mom. He was calling everybody in my family, telling them what an awful woman I was. And um, he would call them all hours of the night and he was on a rampage. So burning furniture, throwing out everything that belonged to me. And so when my mom told me he's taking all of your stuff to the dump, we had only got out of the, gotten out of the house with the clothes on our back. So I got some um, men who were husbands of some uh, friends of mine from a ladies Bible study I was in to go to the dumpster with me. And he shows up there and threatens them. One of them was a deputy, <laughs> like, you better put that stuff back. Um, but he started throwing things back in. He didn't see me. I had a flashlight. It was so deep um, in that dumpster and it was getting dark. It was February afternoon, late in the afternoon. And so I just turned off my flashlight and prayed he wouldn't see me. He threw a lamp and it missed my head. And then he threw this bag of clothes and it knocked me down into all this all this rotten food dirty diapers oh. I'd been opening the trash bags and I thought oh lord nobody knows what I'm going through nobody understands and as soon as I said that because I had really just been crying out to God and it was like Jesus was there and I felt him in my spirit saying I know I know what it's like to be betrayed I know what it's like to be abused by somebody I love. I know. And so that moment was like, I, I tell people all the time was like the worst and best day of my life all rolled into one because all of a sudden I had this revelation of his love like I've never had before. So even in the depths of my despair, he was there. I just knew that it, as hard as it was, and it just continued to get harder because every system seemed to be against me. Even the police wouldn't come when I called. Um, I knew that if he loved me that much, that if he chose to come down and enter into this mess of su the suffering that we have, that I knew I could trust him to get me through it. And I just had to hold on to that hope. And I did. And over time, there was just one, it seemed like one crisis after the other. There was always, th there were always threats against my life. And uh, it went on for quite a while. And I remember one day just being really frustrated because I was reaching out to everyone I knew for help. I reached out to my pastor. My pastor didn't know what to do with it. Uh, he tried to do marital counseling, which was disastrous. And then eventually gave me a, a, a card for a divorce attorney. And I thought this man does not know Jesus because why would he tell me to get a divorce? In my mind, divorce was the worst thing that could happen. But as I was trying to get out, I remember thinking, Lord, if you help me survive this, I will help other women in this situation because it, it was amazing to me, the lack of resources and mm -hmm. bothered me even back then. So <clears throat> eventually I did get out. I came back to North Carolina, the state where I grew up and nearer, closer to my family. And I, I told the pastor's wife at our church, I said, if you ever have anybody with domestic abuse, I would love to help them. She certainly connected me with somebody pretty quickly. And so I took her down to a shelter. Um, then one day, uh, basically just to get 
to talk to an advocate. But one day, uh, maybe a month or so later, she walks into the church and she says, my husband tried to strangle me this morning before coming to church. And so I'm like, bad advocacy. I'm telling you this right now. But I said, you're coming home with me. (laughs) We don't make decisions for him. And it definitely might be putting yourself in danger to do that. But at the time, that was what I wanted to do as a survivor. So I brought her to my house and uh, with her three kids, two, three, and four years old. And so the pastor had walked in that day and he said, we are here for you. The church will be here if you need us. And, um, you know, prayed with her by Monday, he calls me and he says, I've talked to her father-in-law. I've been told that she's emotionally unstable. He says, um, basically in these cases, it's just too hard to tell who's telling the truth. So church is backing out of it. You do what you want to do, but we're backing out. But not only- That's so common. That is so common. Yeah. Not only did they back out, but he also told the father-in-law where she was living. So he endangered us because this angry man showed up at my house screaming. Um, So eventually I ended up taking her up to a shelter nearby. And while she was in talking to the advocate, I told them my story and I said, I would love to volunteer. Now I had had a little bit of training on domestic abuse before I got out. And so I told them about the little bit of knowledge I did have. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from the domestic violence shelter and they said, Um, would you be interested in coming and speaking at our candlelight vigil to honor victims of domestic abuse who have died in the previous year Mm. um, for domestic violence awareness month? And I thought, I don't speak in public. (laughs) So, and I was like, I I would have said no, but it was like a check from the Holy spirit. I didn't bring you through all of this to keep your mouth quiet. Um, and I, I think I've actually skipped my healing process, but the Lord really had, um, brought me through a lot of healing because I had gotten into a a lady's Bible study. Um, it was actually a Kay Arthur study. And we started out with one called Lord, where are you when bad things happen? Then we went to one called Lord, where are you? Uh, no, no Lord heal my hurts. And, um, both of those helped me work through so many things and helped me to understand that when I'm reading scripture, I'm looking for his heart. I'm no longer looking for the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, that as I was really um, diving into scripture and writing scriptures out and finding scriptures that applied to what I was struggling with, I've always been a journaler. And I think that the journaling uh, helped a whole lot. And so as I'm journaling these things, I'm, I'm also applying truth that I'm getting from the word of God and I'm posting them on the walls of my house. And so I had really, um, I had felt free. I, I had been working through it for maybe two years by the time that they called me at the shelter to do that. Let's just so, press pause for a minute, Joy, because I think this is such an important thing, because this is part of what helped me heal too. So we really want our listeners to understand that the word of God is powerful. The word of God is powerful. And we're always gonna listen to words. We're always gonna be defined by words. It's whose words are we gonna be defined by? And this is really important for our listeners because so often, like for me, I was defined by my mother's words. You know, you have no, you know, I hate you. You have no sparkle in your life. You're, you know, and she didn't say this word, you're worthless, but that was sort of the attitude that I got. And so you've got these words about who you are you're stupid, you're not going to amount to anything, you're not a biblical Christian, you're a bad wife, whatever people say about you. And then we start to read God's words, and they sort of feel like words on a page, they sort of feel flat, because we don't have that personal relationship with God. And so we have to kind of come to terms with 
whose words are we going to believe? Because even Jesus had ugly words spewed at him. You're out of your mind. You're demon possessed. So we have to decide whose definition of who we are, are we going to believe and cling to? And so part of your healing and mine too involved saying, whoa, this is what my mother says. And this is what God says about who I am. Mm -hmm. Which one am I going to hang on to? Because that's going to make a big difference in the way my life goes. And so when we choose to cling to our abuser's words or lies, um, that's to our detriment. And God calls us, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I love that you did that. I did that too. And one exercise that I think is really helpful is when you read the Bible, don't read it as what am I supposed to do? Read about it in terms of saying, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? And then write it down, right? So if, if God is saying to you, I love you with an everlasting love, or you're perfect in my eyes. It's like, really? <laughs> like I'm writing this down, really? And I, and I can see, right? I don't really believe that. I hear it. And Jesus tells us over 70 times in the gospel, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And so part of our healing comes from deciding we're going to believe God and what he says over our own feelings, our own thoughts, other people's words. And that is part of the journey of that healing. Amen. Amen. And actually, so th that is uh, the, the majority of my healing came from that just looking. And when I went to scripture, looking for his heart. Mm -hmm. So I had always looked for what, I, what am I supposed to do? The letter of the law. So I, in fact, that's where the name called to peace ministries comes from. I was reading first Corinthians seven one day, and I had a mantra, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. I mean, to the point that I think he hated divorce more than he loved me, honestly. And um, even my 12 year old daughter said, she said, mom, why don't you just get out? And I said, well, because God hates divorce. And she looked at me and she said, mom, God hates divorce, but he's going to hate it a lot more when my mom is dead. She had more wisdom than I did at that point, but because the marriage had just become so important to me, all consuming. And you talked about lies that we believe that people have told us the lie I told myself was I'll never divorce people who divorce just don't try hard enough. It took me a long time to even figure out where my um, tenacious clinging to the wrong thing came from. And that was it. It was that I um, basically was misapplying scripture on my, for, against myself. So call to peace came from where? Yeah. So first Corinthians seven, I, I think 15, I was reading that passage about if an unbeliever wants to leave, let him go. And I thought, well, Lord, in the past, every time I'd read it, I'd say, he says, he's a believer. He doesn't want to go. And I'm thinking just physical going was all it meant. But that day when I read it, if the unbeliever wants to go, let him go. In such cases, the believing spouse is not under bondage because God has called us to peace. I don't know if you've ever had a scripture wash all over you and hit every part of your heart that needs it. But that's what happened to me that day. God, it was like God setting me free personally and saying, Joy, I did not call you to this. I'm calling you to peace. And so that was life changing for me. And so I was I, I felt released by the Holy Spirit to leave and to get safe because it had become quite deadly at that point. That's how uh, the name called to peace ended up being the title of the book and also the name of the ministry because for me it is knowing his heart looking for his heart instead of the letter of the law and so many of us in conservative circles end up looking for the letter of the law we get stuck 
um, based on some misinterpretation of scripture so many times. And so it was just a beautiful thing that he showed me his heart finally and set me three, free through that. And so that is so true. I think that's so lovely that you found that. And I have too. And I think this is really important for our listeners. When you know someone, when you know someone and you know their heart, it helps you interpret their actions differently. I remember having a client once and I didn't return her phone call. She called me and she said, I need to talk to you. And I didn't return her phone call. And so after a few days, she began to think to herself, oh, Leslie just doesn't care. You know, I'm just a client. She, I'm not paying her for this phone call. So she's not going to turn. She was thinking negative thoughts. And all of a sudden she stopped herself and she said, wait a minute. I know Leslie's heart. That's not who she is. And when she, when she could kind of reorient to my heart, she was able to not understand why I didn't call her back, but not put all these negative, she hates me, she doesn't care about me kind of thing. And it's the same thing with God. When we understand his heart, we may not understand his ways. That's, you know, like, why did you allow this to happen? Or I don't understand what you're up to. All of those kind of things. But when we know God's heart, that you are for me and not against me, that you love me with an everlasting love, that I am precious to you, that safety is important to you, that you don't love my husband more than you love me. Then all those verses make sense in a context very differently than they do when we're just trying to follow the letter of the law. And so I think this is so important for our listeners, especially if you're in an abused relation, abusive relationship, you're being oppressed by your spouse and maybe even by your church to, you know, you have to submit no matter what, you have to stay no matter what. It's better to die in an abusive relationship than to get a divorce. How many women believe that? But it's just not true. That's not what God's asking you to do. Yeah. And so you're so right. And Jesus is so right. Truth really does set us free. And so that takes me back to when I was invited to speak for that uh, domestic violence uh, shelter. I did go and I did speak. I said, Lord, if you get me through this, <laughs> I prayed all the way up there. And I was very nervous at the beginning. And then by the end, I don't even remember all I said, but it ended with, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And one of the board members of the shelter got up and hugged me on the way back to my seat. And um, a few more weeks later, I get a call that they said, they said, um, we have a position for community educator, basically a spokesperson for the shelter. <laughs> Would you be interested? <laughs> and I'm going, but I don't speak in public. <laughs> and I, and I knew that had also had to be God because it's almost like God's sense of humor. Right. And I went up and interviewed and I got that job and I tell people that God put me there, not just to um, do that job, but to be educated because I sat and watched Christian women coming in through the doors of that shel the shelter. And they would say, why does my pastor care more about my marriage than my life? Why does my pastor keep sending me back to this abusive man? Why can't he see what's happening to my children? And I thought, Oh Lord, it shouldn't be this way. And as a, you know, working for a secular shelter, I would reach out to churches. I would reach out to a seminary, local seminary professors, and they really didn't want to hear from a secular agency, but it was just really starting this fire in me that this isn't right. Something needs to be done. I did try to do a little training for pastors. I sent out 200 self-addressed stamped envelopes with a little survey about, have you had domestic abuse in your congregation? And I had 10 questions self-addressed stamp envelope. I got 10 out of 200 back. Five were filled out by women. When we did the training, uh, 
I want to say two pastors, or whether there were five pastors there, but two I invited. So there were three that I didn't invite, two of them I invited to speak, one to do a prayer, one to do a little talk on something. And the one that I called to do the little talk left early. So he didn't get the training. So that was very frustrating. And then um, I soon ended up having to leave that job. It was just too much. I had four teenagers at home that I was raising and it was, uh, it was just too much for me to do, but I know that God put me there for that year and a half to be educated. And then in 2004, uh, that was 2000, 2001, 2004, God called me to seminary very clearly. I've never had anything quite so (laughs) clear in my life and uh, into a counseling program at the local seminary, which I, it was a biblical counseling program. I had no idea what that was about. I'd never heard of biblical counseling, but I knew that was what I was supposed to do. And so I start this biblical counseling program and um, with this professor, it was almost like I know, Leslie, this may sound crazy, but it was like I couldn't sleep at night. And until I knew it was God trying to tell me something. And then one night I couldn't sleep and a real weird thought came into my head that I should take a Tuesday afternoon counseling class at the seminary. And the professor's name came to mind because I had um, tried to reach out to him when I was working at the shelter and he was not very um, receptive. But when I went to the seminary and signed up, he had a Tuesday afternoon class. And that professor ended up coming to my church and uh, starting a a lay counseling program. And he plugged me in immediately in the counseling program. And I was really the only female counselor in a church of about 2,000 members. And I started counseling and I started seeing domestic abuse just left and right. And the way it was being counseled was, of course, not good. It was the focus was on the marriage. So with my little bit of knowledge that I had, I tried to help them understand we can't do marriage counseling. And they were willing to listen to some degree. Uh, But one of the most common bits of counsel they received was, well, as long as he's not asking you to sin, you need to submit. And I say that when you submit to somebody who's abusive, especially when you're treating submission like obedience, it's basically like feeding a monster. It feeds their sense of entitlement. And so things just got worse and we could, you know, they were saving marriages, but it didn't last. And I thought, Lord, there's got to be a better way. So there's a part two that just put more fire under me. Like we've got to do a better job of this. And so, um, I think I I stayed in that church for nine years and I finally ended up leaving because I felt like that their main counsel being, you got to submit. I was trying to protect women within the church and I really couldn't. So it's so hard because, you know, when I've talked with pastors, their value, it's sort of like in the New Testament, you know, the, the Pharisees really valued keeping the Sabbath. And, and so they became very legalistic around the whole thing. And Jesus kind of went in crashing those ideas, like he picked grain on the Sabbath. And he said, if your ox fell into a hole, wouldn't you break the Sabbath to save your ox from danger? And so I think the sanctity of marriage has become this kind of sacred cow that, you know, the new Sabbath, the sacred cow, we have to protect this at all costs. And so it's better for a woman to die in a marriage than get divorced. And they wouldn't quite say that out loud, but when you really talk about, Hey, if the marriage is oppressive and destructive and, and sinful stuff is happening to the children and to the wife, is it better for her to lie and pretend just to keep the marriage together? Or is it more honest to say this marriage is broken? And if the husband really doesn't want to repent, it can't be repaired. 
And it's so hard for ministry leaders to say, yes, that's better. It's like the marriage has become the sacred cow. We really want to save it at all costs, even if it means, you know, you have to take a little abuse. Right. Well, and it's the same principle. Jesus said to the Pharisees, um, you know, man, what the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Well, marriage was made for man is not good for man to be alone. It was meant to bless us. And so we take institutions that God has given us to bless us and we turn them into systems of oppression sometimes. And it's, that's not something like it called to peace ministries. We don't even take a position. Like we just, we say to churches, we will work within your framework if you're not endangering victims of domestic abuse. And so I have actually seen pastors with a permanent view of marriage, help women to separate and to be safe. So that's like, we're, I mean, our bandwagon is not, we're not uh, waving the pro divorce flag. We, we think that yes, divorce is sad. It's, but Jesus, Jesus said that Moses allowed it because of the hardness of men's hearts. We don't advocate for divorce at all. Um, that's not God's best, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's allowed because there just is no other solution because of the hardness of people's hearts. Yes. And I really believe like after doing this work for 25, 26 years, what I have found is that the impacts on the children, if if we're telling a woman, you have to stay in there. And and even one of the marriages that we saved years ago at that church that I was talking about, we helped save a marriage. We separated them for a year and a half. And then they, they slowly got back together by dating first in public. And then after dating in public, he would come into the home once a week for dinner. And so we thought we did it very wisely. Um, but after they reconciled, it didn't take too long before the old patterns were back. And the father actually physically abused the child. And um, this girl, by the time that she was a teenager, she was cutting, starving herself, ended up having to go off to a program for troubled teens. And I know that it was because we saved the marriage. We saved the marriage, but we sacrificed this child. And so in the beginning, when I was helping women get out of abusive situations, I felt so guilty about it. I felt, I felt bad. And then I later realized I'm saving their lives. And the reason I did it was because there were not really any educated resources. Do I believe an abusive person can change? Absolutely. But they they have to do it uh, with somebody who understands. And there are so few people that are trained in the dynamics of abuse. There are so few groups for these men who Mm -hmm. use power and control. And really the group dynamic is one of the most um, effective ways for these guys to change. In fact, Call to Peace just started groups for men last year because there's, there aren't any, (laughs) and we have a lot of women who want to see their marriages, uh, change. They want to save their marriages. I certainly did. I didn't want to be divorced, but, but you can't save your marriage if your husband's not willing to do the work. And I think this is, this is the really important burden that we have to take off of a woman's shoulder. I mean, she can pray for her husband. She can do her side of the street, not retaliate, not repay evil for evil, all the things that we teach, but she can't, put the desire for him to be a good man inside of his heart. And I think there are, we've talked about this before, Joy, I think there are good men who don't know how to handle themselves emotionally. They get stressed out, they get worked up, they don't know how to manage their emotions. We see it all over the news, we see it all over the culture. And they probably feel bad about that. But we need other men and groups to help them learn how to handle those things because they want to, not because their wife's gonna leave them. 
And I think this is a a huge motivation because if it's only because his his wife's going to leave him, okay, I'll change, I'll change. Well, then when she doesn't leave anymore, she comes back. There's no incentive to keep up the change, right? But if he really wants to be a good man and he has to learn how to manage his emotions and be more self-controlled, which is what God calls us all to, then Mm -hmm. he's got to do that work. But there are a lot of men who are not interested in that. They're basically interested in being little kings and having a little kingdom and being the oppressive leader. And they wouldn't call it that. We would call it some other things as well. But there are wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus says. And they have absolutely no desire to be a sheep. They just want to look like sheep, but they always bite like wolves. Yeah. And we we tell the women um, that basically it, it has to be his decision. Uh, but we do know that there aren't a lot of resources for the men who do want to change. And what I find with the ones who really want to change is that they actually, most of the ones that, and I've seen very few actually, the ones that I have seen that changed, they had some kind of an epiphany and they realized they took full responsibility. This was me. I messed up. And it's almost like they, they actually have true conviction versus uh, I'm going to do what I need to do to win you back. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, the fact that there are so few resources for the men. So um, we actually, one of the pastors on our staff had a heart for it. So we started it. Um, we still, I would still say that it's probably less than half of them who are really willing to work the program and, and do it, do the work that it takes to. Um, and even so we tell them the motivation should not be to win your wife back. Your motivation should be to change, change and to restore your relationship to Jesus, because that's our, our main focus for the women is basically so that they can be restored to him and know his heart for them. And then for these guys, the same thing, and it may or may not end up in a restored marriage. Most of the time probably doesn't, but um, anyway, it's, it's definitely, it's such a complex issue and there are so few people that know how to deal with it. Um, And I think that's where a lot of the programs at call to peace ministries have just come out of this need we see a, a, just a blaring need. And so we kind of step in or the Lord, I feel like the Lord gives me these ideas that won't go away. They just come to my head, like, um, you know, or, or he will do things like what happened before our advocacy courses. Um, I had about six people ask me within a six month period, like, uh, why don't you teach an advocacy course? And they knew I was an advocate with the North Carolina coalition against domestic violence, but I thought, why do people keep asking me that? I mean, like, well, maybe not six, but four or five people would you teach an advocacy class. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to write the curriculum. And I, if I use the stuff from the state of North Carolina, a lot of that's just political correctness. And so um, finally in 2018, Dr. Deborah Wingfield reached out to me. She got my name from a a mutual friend who was a domestic violence advocate, uh, Julie Owens. And she said, Julie says we need to get together and do some work together. And when I finally did meet with her, she said, I've got 30 classes I've written on domestic violence and advocacy. <laughs> and I, if I hadn't had those people asking me, I would have just gone, oh, well, that's nice. But because of that, and I just believe that that's how God sets us up sometimes. If you're not <laughs> going to listen to me, then let me get some other people to remind, tell you what you need to do. So Dr. Deborah comes in in 2019, we started, she has 12 courses that we do over the course of a year. Um, And that gives you a full education on the dynamics of domestic abuse, the impacts of abuse. We talk about the court system, the impacts of abuse on children, community resources, and we even have a practicum. And And this trains women who want to help other women 
go through the court system or go through their, you know, be an advocate for them. Sometimes when you're so beaten down, you can't advocate for yourself as well as you can when there's another woman alongside of you. So this training helps those in our audience who might want to be a part of the solution and how can we help women get safe and strong and get back on their feet? Absolutely. I mean, if you um, were to go through the entire 12 months and you get the certificates that come with the end of each course, then you can become eligible to be a volunteer advocate with Called to Peace Ministry. So we have maybe 70 advocates across the United States and even internationally who will walk alongside women and help them. And what we we've learned how to do that well by not telling them what to do, but helping them explore their options. Um, but it's not just for women, it's for men as well. We've had pastors come through. We've had counselors. I know that in my counseling program, I got very little uh, education on the dynamics of abuse. And so um, we've had a lot of uh, folks come through. And what happened as a result of that is a couple of the pastors on our board went through the training. As I was advocating for women, I kept thinking it would be really nice if I had a pastor who could just talk to these other pastors. I was going in and saying, talking to the pastors, trying to encourage them on how to help women in their congregations who had come through our ministry. Some of them listened, but a lot of them, I just thought, oh, I wish I could have a man or a pastor, especially a pastor who could speak to these folks. And so that thought kept coming to my mind over and over again to finally, I just said to one of the pastors uh, who was taking the courses, hey, Jim, do you think you'd be interested in working for Call to Peace, maybe five to 10 hours a week? And so he said, yeah, I was actually thinking of going by vocational. He was in a real small church and he could use the extra income. So um, he joined up with us as our first church partnership liaison and would go and reach out to churches as women were going through domestic abuse. Sometimes he would reach out to the pastor and say, hey, we're just here as a resource for you. Um, and as a result of that, I was seeing, we were seeing a better response from these pastors and we were able to walk alongside these, not only the victim, but the church to help them. How do you support her well without doing harm? And so yeah. that's what started happening with this church partnership program. Well, that was maybe two and a half or three years ago. Um, since then, we have hired another, uh, we have a full-time church partnership coordinator, Dan Beck, who um, lives down in Georgia. And Dan has such a heart for this, and he's not only going to one church at a time, but he's going to certain denominations, and we've done some trainings with different denominations, but I'm so excited about it because it's men, it's pastors speaking to other pastors, and it's pastors who got it. Like, Jim was one of those that was so intuitive when a woman came to him in his congregation years ago, he kept going, something's not right here, this is just not right, until he started researching it so much that he found a power and control wheel and he went to the woman is this what's happening to you and she said yeah he says I think you're being abused <laughs> well he very few people have that kind of um, instinctive uh, ability to recognize domestic abuse but he did and so he was a great fit and Dan is also and we have another uh, pastor um, Andre Turrentine who's on our staff is also a church partnership liaison and because pastors going through our advocacy training are, uh, if they're willing, we will also bring them along. We now have about three volunteer pastors who are across the country um, who are working with us to help women who are in these kinds of situations. It's really exciting to me because that was my heart in starting this. It's like, we have to come alongside. We have to help churches get it. And so they're just 
it seems like, and you probably recognize this, that churches are waking up. Maybe the Me Too movement, I don't know what it is, but um, the fact that they've become way more receptive. And so we have this, yeah. Yeah, they have been. I think there's still a big fear that if they are receptive, they're going to have this avalanche of women who are saying their husbands are abusive and they're not going to know what to do with all of that. Um, but I do think that you know, if we can come alongside a church, come alongside a family, come alongside people in the church to know what to do and what not to do, uh, that's helpful and harmful for the family and the children and the victim. Um, I think that's, you know, that's a beautiful thing that God's doing. And I see it uh, happening more and more. And so for those of you who are listening to this podcast, we're talking about Call to Peace Ministries, and they are an organization that provides a compassionate and comprehensive program to give a Christ-centered response to those impacted by domestic abuse. And we're talking about how it's reaching into the church now and pastors are now becoming advocates with Call to Peace so that they can go into the churches and talk to other pastors who may not be as receptive hearing it from a woman, sadly, but it's true. And they are more receptive to hearing it from a colleague that they're saying, wow, yeah, I see what you're talking about and I see how you're using the scriptures and they're being able to be impacted. So we're so excited about what you're doing, Joy, and we really want to get the word out to the people who are listening to this podcast so that if they want to be trained, they want to come to your classes on advocacy, or they want to know more about you, how would they find you? They can just go to calledtopeace.org. There's a join us tab that you can sign up to become an advocate or to take the advocacy courses. You don't have to become an advocate with us. You can just take it to, for your own knowledge or they can request a church partnership uh, liaison person. And then also they can join our support groups. I, I think I didn't talk too much about that, but our support groups, they're free to little cost. And even if you can't afford the books, it's based on my book and the workbook that goes along with it. And so those are all, all over the country as well. We have um, small groups that meet mostly online, but there are some that meet locally as well. And then we have uh, basically an emergency fund for people who are working with either one of our advocates or in our support groups information about all of that is available on our website. So if you're listening and you want to be a part of Call to Peace, you'd love to have some more training and advocacy or um, information, go there. And if you are a victim and you're saying, I need an advocate, they can reach out to you too and see if there's an advocate available in their area that might be able to help them. We definitely keep a waiting list, but somebody will get back to you um, usually within 48 hours, not including weekends. So we are not a crisis uh, agency. So we're not 24-7, um, but we're, we're there for is to help you get stabilized, to help support you walk through issues with your church um, courts sometimes. Like Dr. Deborah is a, a real expert when it comes to domestic abuse in the courts. She has two courses in the advocacy curriculum. And a lot of people think, well, we don't really need that court stuff, but we know that the courts do not understand domestic abuse any better than the churches have. And it's because it's just counterintuitive. As a victim of abuse, I would have never called myself abused. So because it's so counterintuitive, um, we really need to educate folks and walk alongside them and not come in harshly and say, you got it wrong, but try to um, walk alongside them and help them understand better. Yeah, that's so, so important. And I'm going to invite Deborah to come on to the podcast and help us understand the court system a little bit more, because I know a lot of our listeners are in the midst of horrible court situations where they're being dragged back into court over and over again and custody issues and what to do and what not to do. So we will invite her to the podcast in the near future. 
But Joy, is there anything else that you would love to share with our listeners, either about your own journey forward or call to peace that would be really helpful for them to know? Well, I I always just want to end it on a positive note. For me, it is that our God is a healer, that he provides the resources. I know that there are people out there who they have all the answers when it comes to what abuse looks like, but they don't share what healing looks like. I really appreciate that you do that. We, we want to put a focus on moving forward. And a lot of times, if you're just recognizing what's happening in your relationship as abuse, that doesn't bring you to the point of healing. And so um, that's our goal, just like with your ministry that we want to help people find his healing, that truth that sets you free. And and so I think it's just really important to be wise about where you turn for help these days, because there's so much out there. When I got out in 1996, oh my goodness, like there were two books and there were no Christian books that were according to my theology. So I wrote the book that I wanted back then, but now there's so many resources. And I just think it's important to be wise about who you turn to for help. Um, because some of them will definitely validate your experience, validate your pain, but they're not going to lead you to healing. So I think it's just a great idea to find people who are going to help you find that truth that sets you free. I love that you said that because as we say in our ministry and in Conquer, there's two issues here. We have an external issue of your marriage, you're being abused. That's the external, what's happening in your life on the outside. But there's also stuff that's going happening on your life on the inside, whether it's I don't believe God. I don't know who I am. I feel I have no confidence. I'm scared all the time. Um, I'm dependent on other people to tell me who I am or how to think or how to feel or what decisions to make. I've done that my whole life. I went from my father to my husband and it's still abusive and controlling. And so if you don't do that inner work to heal, you're just going to look for another benevolent rescuer, someone who's going to control you. It might be the pastor. It might be another way. And they might be meaning well, but you haven't done your work to make your own decisions and to grow into full maturity. And it is God's will. It is God's will for you, not only to heal, but to grow and to thrive and to become the whole person that he's created you to be. And so this adversity, this awful situation that you're in can be that impetus to say, I need to grow. It can be the impetus for an abuser to say, I need to grow too. You can't make him, but you can do your work to grow so that this pattern doesn't continue in the next generation. Amen. Thanks, Joy. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thanks. God bless. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to hit that follow button. And we would appreciate if you would leave your honest rating and review of this podcast. Well, until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.